If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 23. We're almost through the book of Luke, uh, which is exciting, and it's, it's been just a, a wondrous, I don't know for you, but for me, my own heart, one of the things I love about God's Word is that when you sit in it, He shows you the same truth, but also something different. And I think today, as we talk um, about the death of Jesus, um, I'm going to just pop this down here. I pr- I'm praying that you will not fly by and not just move past it. And I'm sure you've heard many times in your life the story of the crucifixion and what happened on that day. And, you know, if you hear people talking about it often, they can tell you the event, they can tell you what happened, they can tell you the things that happened. But I wonder how much we really understand in our own hearts and feel it and experience it. Last week, Pastor Daniel, uh, if you did not get to listen, I encourage you to jump on there, did just a fabulous job and eloquently spoke. And one of the things that I was drawn to was the tenderness of Jesus um, as Daniel spoke, and I felt like he communicated it so well. But it is odd that we're right here at Christmas in the gift, and Daniel said this, and yet we are at the death of Jesus. So the time of year, the most wonderful time of the year, we're celebrating the gifts and the lights and, you know, candy and cookies and all this stuff. And here we are talking about the death of Jesus. And yet that new birth, that new life that came was also born to bleed, born to die. The facts of the crucifixion are known by billions of people, billions of people, but connecting to it And having it be something that really moves your heart is something different. We need something deeper. We need a soul connection. We got to feel it. We need to feel it. And I don't want to look at the cross of Jesus and know we have this one. And it's a cleaned up one. It's nice. It's got edges. It's like perfectly finished and varnished. And sometimes that's kind of how we view the cross when we think about it. When I was younger, I remember, and I don't know if this was just something that they did with junior high kids or whatever, but I remember just thinking about like, it was like you scared you with the cross. They scared you with the pounding of the nails and the blood. And it was like, I don't want that to happen to me. So I'm so glad that Jesus did that. But there wasn't this understanding of the love of God. So if you could have been there and asked somebody, what's happening here? What's going on? What would the answer be for people that were just watching this event happen? Just some random rabbi who made a ruckus around town. He got himself killed. That'll teach him just another crucifixion. What's new? And it was just another crucifixion. They saw these all the time. It wasn't unusual to be heading outside of the city of Jerusalem and you've got the occupying Roman army and Roman government. And there might be one, two, three, four crosses on the side of the road with some guy hanging on it. So people walk by crosses many times daily. So what's new about this one? But the Bible tells us again and again, this one was different. This one, 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, the same John, but 1 John 3.16 tells, tells us this. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is, that Christ died for us. Jesus said his own words, greater love has no one than this, than what? Lay down his life for his friends. God so loved the world that he 
gave his son. So today, I just want to ask that the Lord would help us experience his love. And that we wouldn't just, as I said, gloss over it or fly by, but that we take it in. We would see what great love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would look and gaze at the glory of the cross. But to do that, we have to connect personally. Because here's the truth. You were there. You were there. Not if you could have been there, would you, what would you have asked? You were there. I was a little boy staying at my grandparents' house. I loved to go to my grandparents' house because that's where I got sugar cereal. <laughs> First thing we did, we go to the grocery store and grandmommy was like, which one do you want? And I'm like, something with cookie in the title. Because you didn't get to have that at your own house. And I should sit there and it was like, I was, I was like this little prince sitting on the couch. My grandmother made crochet uh, those Afghan things with the holes and stuff. We would sit under those blankets that aren't really blankets. And she would bring on a tray sugar cereal with bananas cut up just right in there. But I'll never forget the moment the next door neighbor boy asked me to come over. And he said, do you want to see my dad's magazines? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'll show you. And it was weird. There was something even in my little boy's heart that started to race a little bit. Like there's something secret and dark about this. And I remember even walking, I can tell you what the room looked like because I felt like I should be looking over my shoulder. Heart was racing. I could hear it in my head and I could feel this pull between what my flesh wanted to do, which was look for the first time at pornography and the spirit saying, run. Do you remember that moment for you? Not necessarily with that sin, but a moment where you were like, I know that I know this is wrong. This darkness creeping around me. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, what did Jesus think about that moment in my little boy's heart? Was he like, oh man, here we go. Another one choosing the wrong way. You know what the Bible says about that moment? That he loved me with an everlasting love. A love so wide and vast that you can't measure it. You can't reach the bottom of it. And that that love was on display on the cross. So the truth about the cross is that that moment where my neighbor friend at my grandmother's house, which is supposed to be the safe place, is where I was introduced to pornography. That moment was on this cross. That moment and every other sinful thought moment, choice, action, even the ones that haven't happened for Chad. But guess what? For you and for billions of other sins, the Holocaust on the cross. Think about that. Every war, every evil thought and action on the cross. So with that in mind, and I want you to be thinking, because hopefully, I, I, even with me telling you my first experience with 
what I felt was just the darkness creeping in. I hope you thought of something too, because that's how you can connect. That's how we make it personal. And maybe it's recent. Maybe it's recent. And Jesus is like, yep, that too, that too. So let's read Luke 23, verse 44, with those images in mind. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land. So the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock, that's noon. Okay, so it was 12 o'clock lunchtime. There was darkness over the whole land until three o'clock, the ninth hour. The sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So 12 o'clock to three o'clock, darkness over the whole land. And this is what I mean sometimes when you jump in and when you actually sit with God's word, like you could say, yeah, Jesus was crucified. Yep, he died. And we piece this together. Like if somebody asks you, yeah, what happened on a uh, good Friday? Well, you know, that's when Jesus was crucified for my sins. He died for us and it's really great. What, well, aren't there some more details? Well, yeah, they mocked him and they, people told him to come down and there was this guy, on the, thief on the cross side and he liked Jesus and asked for his help. The other one was mocking him. Jesus spoke grace to this one guy. Everything got dark. Jesus said his final words and he died. And I think we actually think it happened pretty fast. Three hours, three hours of darkness. Three hours of Jesus in suffering, three hours to deal with the sins of the world. The sun's light failed. That's how Luke described it. Has there ever been another moment in history than when that was said? The sun failed to shine. Darkness descending upon him, consuming him, enveloping him. It's talons reaching to tear him apart. How long does it take to deal with the sins of all time in history? How long is long enough? Some have tried to explain away the darkness, saying, oh, it was a solar eclipse. Like, many times like, we, people like that, no, there's no way that was a supernatural thing. It just happened if there was a solar eclipse. But three hours of a solar eclipse? All four gospels communicate this happened. It was a darkness that was not a natural thing. It was a supernatural occurrence. This was God's doing. In the Old Testament, you see that darkness usually accompanies something where God's wrath is coming, his judgment is coming, but it's also creation itself responding to what's happening, to the death of the creator. A sign of judgment, a sign of God's wrath. The earth quaked at this moment too. Now this, this version and Luke doesn't tell us that, but the sun's light failed. There was darkness for three hours and there was an earthquake. And the other gospels tell us that there were actually other people at that moment that rose from the dead. So your long lost uncle shows up for dinner. And it's like, hey, what's going on? This, it's amazing to think about that. But that's the kind of things that were happening at this moment. But there's also a prophetic and ancient feel to this phrase, there was darkness over the land. It's a darkness that has a pre-creation quality to it. And as I was studying this week, the Lord brought to mind the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning of the world where there was chaos and disorder. In the beginning, the earth was void and without form and darkness covered the face of the deep. Darkness was over the whole land. It was a blank canvas 
a backdrop necessary to show light, a clean slate for God to paint upon. But this time, the canvas is darkened and sullied with the sins of billions of people over thousands of years. My sin at my neighbor friend's house is part of that canvas. Your sin, a part of that canvas. At the beginning, God would create what is described as ex nihilo, out of nothing. No material, nothing was there. He just spoke it into existence, called things into order, pulled them together, combined to make something beautiful. But this time, something would have to be broken. Something would have to be destroyed and torn apart, pulled apart in order to recreate something beautiful. Verse says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So the in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies and there was a thick curtain. You read about it. It was super thick, six inches thick, which I don't know how you can have fabric that's six inches thick, but that's how, how deep it was. And the priest was the only one allowed to go in there once a year to offer for the sacrifices of the people. And it says at this moment, that ripped from top to bottom. Darkness over the, whole, over the face of the earth, earthquake, and it rips from top to, bottom, top to bottom, the curtain separating the holy from the common. Only a priest could go in. Now, what is Jesus saying? Through me, through my body being torn, here's a doorway. Here's a way for you to enter in. Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. As we have said before, everything's on time. Everything is happening according to schedule. Jesus says, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. He decides when to give it up. Sovereign control, complete over this moment, allowing himself to be crucified and murdered. As I thought about these three hours, I thought about how uncomfortable it would have been just to witness it, to stay there, to look at it, to see it happening. Yet all of the gospels go to great lengths to describe everything that's happening. All of the details, the people, who said what, how long it took, this witness, this witness, which means we're supposed to pay attention to it. We're supposed to take it in. And when you sit in the dark, and we're supposed to sit in this darkness, at least for a time. And I think that's why it's there. Otherwise it would just say, yeah, Jesus died and everything's great. Just believe it. It's all the light. Everything's good. But he, he takes time, takes time to say, here's everything that happened. And so when you sit in the dark, something starts to happen. Your eyes adjust. You can actually begin to see better. The pupils of your eyes in natural darkness, they adjust, they open up. I think the same thing happens when we think about what was accomplished for us on the cross and the depth of God's love, meeting the depth of our sin, the pupils of our spirit begin to open and dilate, grasping for any pinpoint of light. Look at the next verse, because watch this begin to happen in people. As they sit in this darkness, three hours of darkness, watch what begins to happen. Verse 47, when the centurion saw what had taken place, and centurion was a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred people, it was the highest rank you could get. This guy, guess what his job was? He was in charge of crucifixions. His job to make this happen, not just like, oh, I don't know if I really want to be here. It's his job to make sure it happens according to their process. Okay, he's done hundreds of these. That centurion, when he 
sees everything that's taken place. He's watching the darkness. He praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. What's going on? All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance to watch these things. So think about just for a moment, the power of the Roman government in this moment. It's by far one of the most powerful nations in the world at this time. Innovation, ability to conquer other nations. They are on the bleeding edge of success. When they want to do something, they do it. Nobody can stop them. Everybody looks at Rome and goes, wow, if we could only be like them. So just think about that in our, in our world today. As nations compete economically for power, whatever, Rome was it. So when they said something, it happened. And when they wanted to do something, it happened. So everything about the crucifixion, everything about what they just did to this poor rabbi points to the fact that, hey, he just got caught up in the political and cultural jaws of Rome. His words were too inflammatory. His actions, miraculous or not, were too much for the religious leaders just to ignore him. He was a threat. So as people in power often do, buttons were pushed, things were said, strings were pulled. Those with influence and power got rid of Jesus. Case closed. No doubt there are people today who believe that. That's all this was. They killed him. Yeah, he was a good guy, but they killed him. Aside from a, a handful of sad saps that followed him and that are now on the run, this is the worldwide consensus of this moment. I think you would actually find, even with people saying, yeah, I believe in God, it's kind of the worldwide consensus now as well. This is just something that happened in history. Conversations around Passover, which is why everybody was in Jerusalem at this moment, were noticeably dampened with the mood from the day because it's supposed to be a celebration. It's supposed to be a full on, like everybody's with family and food, kind of like Christmas, gathering around the table. And you can overhear a couple of brothers who showed up at their parents' house that night for dinner. And he's standing in the corner and he's like, hey, that was, that was kind of ugh, rotten today. That whole crucifixion deal. I mean, on Passover, couldn't they just wait? That guy, yeah, I mean, I heard he was a good guy. Maybe some people even said he did miracles, but how's that for starting Passover? Death. That guy got killed. And yet, in this moment, we have a Roman soldier, a powerful man, as I said, a leader of hundreds, well off, great future ahead of him. He's at the highest rank he can get. And he decides to say this, verse 47, Certainly this man was innocent. You read the other gospels. Anybody know what else he said? This man was the son of God. Are you trying to end your career? What are you doing? Certainly this man was innocent. This man was the son of God. If ever there was a moment of a heart turning and of all the people, this guy, the guy who's in charge of the crucifixion is the one who actually says, yep, that's the son of God. Not the religious leaders, nobody else there. It's the guy in charge of the crucifixions who says this is the son of God. How many times in years to come would he retell this moment to other people in the future by saying, you know what? I once was blind. Who but he knows the next line in the hymn. But 
Now I see, I saw, I can't explain how it happened. I had overseen hundreds of crucifixions. It was routine. But this one was different. This guy was praying for us as we carried out his execution. He had no anger. He showed no derision to any of us around him. He showed compassion even to the people who were mocking him. He showed great love. And then you throw in a little bit of supernatural darkness and the earthquakes and people rising from the dead. And oh yeah, he's going to say this is something different about this. So on the darkened canvas of the crucifixion, even for one who was in charge of the crucifixion, a light is starting to shine. At creation, back to Genesis, upon the darkness, God spoke. Let there be light. And here, once again, in the darkness that is covering the earth and the darkness that covers this guy's heart, the living word on the cross speaks. Let there be light. And the guy says, I think this is the son of God. The same word, Hebrews tells us, John tells us, Paul tells us, the guy being crucified made everything. The very wood he is hanging on, the iron for the nails that were used to pin his arms, the dirt and rock to hold the cross, he made it. And Hebrews also tells us that he is sustaining everything by the word of his power, even from the cross. And I know I say this all the time, but I still can't believe it. The very men who were hammering the nails into his hands and feet, Jesus was sustaining their very breath and heartbeat. At any moment could say, you're dead. You can't do this. Remember what he said? I could call thousands of angels at any moment. And yet he still says, keep beating, keep breathing. This has to happen. The Roman centurion is seeing Jesus. In the dark, he is beginning to see. Others are being affected by this as well. Look at the other verse. The crowds that had assembled, what are they doing when they leave? They're beating their breasts. This is a strong statement of what have we done? What have we done? We went for the spectacle this guy's an idiot. He needs to be killed. They go home and something's happening in the darkness of their hearts, in the canvas that is over the whole earth. They're starting to see. They're beating their breasts. Women standing at a distance. To me at this part, it just reminded us like, what part do we play in our salvation? Nothing. We can only stand at a distance and watch. You can't do a thing to save yourself. They stand at a distance and they watch. Let's read about how others begin to see in the dark. Verse 50. Now this is, I'll just tell you, this little story right here is if I have a top three of people in the Bible that I am get fired up about. This is one of them right here. This guy and his friend, Nicodemus. So lean in. Verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. 
this man went to Pilate, excuse me, you need to do that. When this, you don't just read this through in a monotone voice. This man, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Then he took it down, took it down, took it down. Full grown man pinned to a cross up in the air. He took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed. They also saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, which let's just do a little mini interpretation because dead people smell. Okay, that's what they're doing. This is, in, this is to push down the smell of a de- decomposing body. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So there was a man named Joseph. When the Bible gives you a name, pay attention. Pay attention. Something special is about to happen. And all four gospels tell the story of Joseph of Arimathea. As Luke gathered the stories of Jesus for his gospel, and as we've said before, Luke is a doctor, he's a Gentile, he was not a witness, but he's talking to eyewitnesses to get the stories. And so the stories he hears, he no doubt probably interviewed Mary, interviewed some of the disciples who were still alive. He is gathering stories from eyewitnesses and there's a name that keeps coming up over and over and over. Joseph of Arimathea. (laughs) They're like, oh my goodness, you can't believe what happened. Listen to this guy. This guy was nuts. He actually went to Pilate, asked for the body. Says Joseph was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, not consented to the decision to crucify, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So member of the council, what is the council? The Sanhedrin. You know what they did? Well, they're the ones that called for the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah, that group. This is who he's a member of and goes and pretty much outs himself as a secret follower of Jesus. And one of the other gospels says he was a secret follower. Guess what? His career's over too. Roman centurion? Yeah, you're not gonna be overseeing crucifixions anymore when you say that somebody's the son of God. This guy, his career's over too. Because you remember the Sanhedrin, one of the things you don't do is you don't touch a dead body. Can't do it. And you don't follow rogue rabbis. His career's over. This little part just reminded me, and I think it's good for us, especially in the times that we're living in, following Jesus will always involve great risk and will not be popular. What does the verse say? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many people will take that road, but the way to life is narrow. Few there are that find it. There will always be great risk. It will not be popular. It will be a narrow path. So let's imagine this meeting with Pilate, 
Joseph of Arimathea, this is dangerous, by the way, to go and talk to Pilate. This is the guy that could also kill you. But I imagine him, you know, who's, who? Yeah, uh, one of the members of the Sanhedrin. Ah, are we done dealing with these people? Didn't we do what we, they asked us to do? They crucified that rabbi. It's like, well, he's still, he's insisting that he sees you. Fine, send him in. Joseph of Arimathea comes in. He's a well-off man. He's rich. We know that because it was his tomb that Jesus would be laid in. He comes up to Pilate and he says, um, yeah, I, I, would like, I would like to have the body of the rabbi that you crucified. What? Aren't you a member of the Sanhedrin? Aren't you the group that asked me to crucify him? Yes, but no. I mean, I'm not any, anymore. I would like, give, give me the body. Give me the body of Jesus. So those are the historical facts. That's what was said. Now take it a step deeper and apply it right now to your heart and life. Give me the body of Jesus. What does the world say about that? Why would you do that? That's stupid. Give me the body of Jesus. Fine, but you have to take it down yourself. Verse 53, then he, and we know from the other gospels, Nicodemus, his friend, took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. So think about these guys. They are members of an upper religious class group. They are both of them probably well off. They both have probably nice clothes. So I like to think about these things. And this is part of the deal of understanding what God did for us. But imagine them taking a ladder, leaning it up against the cross that has a body on it. So maybe they're trying not to have it rest on the body at the same time. And just these old guys hopping up there to, I mean, think about this. Do you have to like wrench the, the nails out? How do, you, how do you get those out? One arm comes loose. Maybe Nicodemus is holding this side while Joseph works on the other hand. I can't get it. I can't. Get, it's not clean. It's not easy. People notice. They're watching. They're pulling at flesh and bone, trying to get it down. Imagine the arms come off, but he's still pinned at the bottom. One of them's propping and holding. I got it. Go ahead. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I can do it. I can do it. They're getting bloody. Yeah. Pretty intense, isn't it? You can't just read past it that way. This is hard. This is physical labor. This is handling a corpse. Something that they've never done, but they did it. Do you think people watched them and thought, you idiots, what are you doing? For sure. But that's not it. That wasn't the, the end of they take the body down and then they carry it. They have to get it to the tomb. They have to get it to the preparation table. It says that Nicodemus bought 75 pounds of spices. That's a lot, by the way. That's, that's a lot. Very, very extravagant, expensive. It's Friday. 
It's late on Friday. The scripture tells us it was the preparation day for the Sabbath, which meant get all your stuff done because tomorrow you can't do anything, you can't do any work. So they're in a hurry. A lot of scholars look at these verses and try to combine the different accounts from the gospels and say, why the women were getting spices and Nicodemus had spices, who wrapped what? Like, why did, you know, doesn't this call into question the historical reliability of this account? It was the Sabbath. It was late in the day. They were hurrying. And honestly, they were guys trying to do this. Okay? They didn't do this kind of thing. They didn't know what they were doing. It was a very meticulous thing. You would wrap the body, arms, legs, everything, wrapping spices in between. And so verse 55 tells us the women who had come with him from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb. They saw how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. The thought being, we have to stop. It's late on the Sabbath. We don't want to break the Sabbath. We'll come back. We'll come back on Sunday morning and finish. I remember the first time a funeral actually hit me where it was somebody that I knew. Now, I'd been to, my grandparents took me to funerals of their, that was the other thing about going to my grandparents' house. The sugar cereal was awesome. Awful to have to go to some of those church events and sometimes funerals. And I remember I'd just be scared and be like going up to the coffin and kind of looking, you know, like just a little kid. You're trying to make it through. But I remember when it was my grandfather and when I had to, and it's all cleaned up, it's what we do now, but I carried the casket. I've never had a moment where I felt more broken and grief and loss and heartache. So rather than flying past this moment, I want you to think about Joseph and Nicodemus and Mary and Salome and the other Mary sitting there. And in a, the tombs that they had back then, they were usually like these real small cutout areas with small boxes, ossuaries, I think is how you say it. In the middle, there would have been a preparation table. What they did was they laid the body on the preparation table. They wrapped it in the spices thing. They closed the tomb. They let the body decay until it was just bones. Imagine this moment. Then you had to go back and get the bones of your loved one and put them in a smaller box and shove them in the side of the the tomb. And that's what you see when you go to Jerusalem. That's what it looks like. There's preparation tables. And then there are these little small cutout things for the bones of people. So I just think it's important for us to think about the fact that these people would have stand there looking just like, oh, there he is. That's the one we thought was our savior. There's a song I loved in college by a singer songwriter named Billy Crockett. And I thought about this song, actually the first line of the song, because it's a communion celebration song. As I pictured Joseph, Nicodemus, Mary, Salome, and Mary looking at Jesus laying on the preparation table. And it's this, pieces of life laid on the table. What did Jesus say about his body? That it was bread, that it was food, that it was true food and his blood was true drink, that it would feed our hungry souls. 
that would wash us and cleanse us. Do we think they completely understood all of this in this moment? No way. No way. It was still dark. Still dark. He hasn't risen from the dead yet, yet they're still there. They're caring for him. They're loving him. They're grieving. They're anointing him. They're worshiping. There's maybe a little bit of shame and regret for the two guys who had been secret about their following of him. It strikes me that how often walking with Jesus in this life, in 2021, now heading into 22, between the return of Jesus, where we don't have full realization yet, is kind of like this, wrapping a corpse. Like, I, th I think I believe. <laughs> I think there's hope here. But something is happening in the heart and mind of Joseph Nicodemus and the women. They aren't exactly sure what's happening because it's still dark. As far as their faith, their future, their hope, it's dark. They aren't going to the tomb to anoint him for the resurrection. They're going to anoint him because his body's going to smell. Joseph and Nicodemus don't ask for the body because they want to be there when he wakes up. No, it's a last effort, action of love. They think it's too late. He's dead. Why wasn't I more public about my love for him? Why did I hide behind my position and religious works instead of following him? And it's this place that I love, this moment of uncertainty, darkness, discouragement, even doubt, because it's the perfect place for Jesus to surprise them and us. I love that this is in here. I love that it takes up space in the gospels. That it isn't just, yeah, Jesus was killed. Hey, he's risen. Isn't it great? Takes time to say darkness, people running, people scared. And even they may not know it, but I see them offering sputtering, flickering flames of faith right here. Give us the body. Hey, will you come with me to wrap the body of Jesus, Nicodemus? Yeah, I will. Both of them ended their careers right there. I'll do it. I'll do it. Salome, Mary, the other Mary, let's go and prepare spices. Let's go to the tomb. Let's wait at the darkened tomb. Why? I don't know. Maybe because I realized I should have done more. I should have loved him more. I should have given more. Or maybe it's just that I don't know what else to do. What else is there to do? Somehow I think I, I believe, I don't know. I, I hope in him. So I want to honor him. I want to remember him. I want to grieve because of him. I want to throw myself at the mercy of the one who I thought could save me. I want to wait with a flicker of hope for the sun to rise on the darkness of my soul. I'm going to ask for the body of Jesus. You never know what light and color might grace the dark canvas of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, I, I want to thank you just for my own heart of, and even a little bit of discomfort sitting in this passage, Lord. Uh, much rather just jump to the resurrection and get to the party. But God, I felt your spirit just calling me to sit. And Lord, I think again of the line, uh, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And Lord, your persistent grace and love to come after us, Lord, to be with us, Lord, to love us. The greatest love that could ever 
be shown or given, Lord, given by you on the cross. Lord, thank you for uh, these stories of people like us who struggled, people who ran, people who doubted, but people also who, in a moment of crazy faith, said, I think he's the son of God. I want his body. I'm going to anoint him. Even those who went home and maybe had been cheering on your crucifixion, but on their way home that night were beating their breasts saying, what have I done? Lord, we know that your word is powerful. God, it can change our hearts. And Lord, everything's not just neatly tied up in a bow in our lives. There are places of darkness right now, God, where we need you to shine. There are places of sin that aren't from when we were a little boy. Maybe they're yesterday. God, where we need you to speak. We need your conviction. We need repentance. We need to move to you, Lord. I pray that your spirit would do that. Lord, you would show us, God, that you have accomplished what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for your living word. Thank you for your sacrifice. Would you minister to us now as we sing together? Amen. If you